Welcome to another episode of the University of Washington's Thrivecast, the podcast designed to help School of Medicine faculty thrive. I'm Trish Critic, and today we're joined by Dr. Soledad Jorge. Dr. Jorge is faculty in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She's a gynecologic oncologist, and she's embarking in a career that includes health services research. And I invited her here today really with an eye towards our early career faculty, because I think a lot of folks are thinking about this, this area of health, health services research and are interested in kind of thinking about how to embark in that pathway. And I thought it would be great to have a conversation with you, Sol, today about that. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Trish, so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I think, actually, I said health services research. And when you and I talked before, I think one thing that's really interesting is what exactly do we mean by health services research? So I'm going to have, have you start off talking with me and our listeners about kind of how do you define health services research? And then we can kind of talk through that process. Yeah, that is such a great question. And it's, you know, it's a little bit hard to define. And um, what I what I did when I first embarked in my health research, um, health services research journey, um, was to look at the UW School of Public Health, which I attended, um, and their health services department's website. And they actually have a nice website where they talk about the definition of health services, and they acknowledge the ambiguity, um, and actually present a whole variety of different definitions that different governing bodies had used. And so I picked the one from that website um, that I encourage any sort of prospective health service research just to check out that really stood out to me um, as most comprehensive. And so I'll just read it out to you, Trish. It says, uh, health services research is a field of inquiry that examines examines the roles of organizations, finance, manpower, technology, and prevention in the provision of healthcare services and their impact on utilization, cost, and quality of care. And I think that last part on the utilization cost and quality of care is something that I think so many folks, particularly early career folks, are really interested in. Like, how are we doing in delivering care to folks? How are are we equitable? Are we safe? Are we giving the highest quality, most efficient care? And I feel like many of our uh, clinical faculty, particularly folks who have a clinical part of their career, naturally in the course of their work, start to ask these questions about the world that they're working in. And and some want to try to, you know, answer some of those questions. So I thought it would be a good conversation for us to talk about, like, how do you start to try to do that? Where do you start? And, and I think that most of the time, this starts with people querying large databases, but I, I'm not entirely sure of that. So maybe you can tell me kind of, how do you start on this journey? And then like, where do you start to dig in to trying to answer some of these health services questions? Yeah, well, like you said, it usually starts with a clinical question that arises quite naturally from your practice or even during training. Mm -hmm. And so really the first step is thinking of a question, you know, and you don't have to define it as exactly at this sort of creative phase of the process, but just having a general idea of the topic and question that you're interested in. And then thinking, geez, is there a database, a large database that I can use to answer this question? And likely the answer is yes. And the big question is really, how do I find this database? Um, There are a ton of databases out there. And certainly for me, when I started with my fellowship project, I knew that I wanted to look at utilization of a drug called bevacizumab in ovarian cancer. And I just didn't know where to find that data. 
So one of the things I did is I talked to my mentor, my research mentor, Dr. Kemi Dole, and she was able to point me to a few databases. So that is always a very helpful step to talk to experts in the field, people who have done um, health services research. And there's a lot of us at UW. So I, I think that's good. And I always want to encourage people to talk to their mentors. That's always a good thing to do. <laughs> Sometimes folks don't have that mentor or, or maybe their mentor is kind of in a different space. So do you have any other suggestions on how to kind of think about where you might find those databases? Yeah, well, actually, um, uh, I encourage people to do a literature search looking specifically for databases. So, for example, for me, I found a series of articles from JAMA Surgery that were published. There are a series of review articles, and the title was Practical Guides to Surgical Datasets. And there were a series of four articles, one that like went into sort of detail on how to use the NIS database, the NCDB database, SEER, and Medicare databases. And those articles were just really rich. They were short, but they had all the information that you needed. Um, and so I know not everyone's doing surgical or oncologic research, but I would bet that most fields, if you go to the, the prominent journal of your field, will have some sort of review series on research and research methods and databases in particular. So definitely a lit search will help. I really like that because I think that's something we can all do. And I think maybe people wouldn't even think that there would be such papers out there that say, here are the databases and here is how you might start to dig into them. So that's great advice. Okay. So once you find a potential database, kind of what's next? Like, how do you know that it's the right one for you or that it's going to help you in mm -hmm. this pursuit? Yeah, so I find that the first step here is you, you want to basically what you're asking is you want to assess the feasibility of the project. So you have your question, you think you've identified a database. Um, so how do you know if you can actually successfully use this database? And a lot of, I wouldn't say, I don't know if most, but a lot of the databases that I've worked with, if you go to their online um, page, they have um, some, a preliminary tool that you can use to get a general sense of whether the disease that you're interested in or the population that you're interested in is significantly uh, or sufficiently represented. So to use an example here, because I think that that is always helpful, I once used the database MarketScan, um, which is the uh, insurance claims database. And they have a tool online called Sample Select Tool. And you basically plug in some very basic information, the sex of the, your participants, the age range, the condition of interest, the drug of interest, assuming that you want to look at a drug, and they just spit out a number of how many people um, they would have in that database. And then you can use that to do a power calculation to see if your clinical question would be sufficiently answered with those numbers. Yeah, so that seems like a really important part. And it sounds like most databases will kind of help you do that question, answer that question of like, is there enough of the folks the population, the disease, the condition, the whatever, the demographic that I'm interested in, in this, in this set of data to really get at the question mm -hmm. that I find interesting. So feasibility assessment seems really important. And I guess, I think what I heard you say is it's going to depend on the tool, but m most databases have some tool to help you answer that question. Yeah. And at the very least, they have a user guide at, in a, a master data dictionary that you can sift through to see, you know, is this feasible? Uh, but a lot of them just have these online calculators, which make it a lot easier. Yeah. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for folks that their yeah. database has that online calculator. So people, I think, are super excited about getting data and having numbers and things like that. And sometimes I think we jump into that phase too quickly. So 
tell me what you think people should do before they start trying to, let's say they found the right database. It seems feasible. What, what are the steps that you would encourage next? Is it jump into the data? Is it doing some more pre-work? What, what do you do? That is such an important point, Trish. And this is something that I that I learned again from, from Kemi Dole, because I, I was in that exact same situation where I identified my database and I just wanted to jump into the analysis. And she made me take a step back and write a very detailed proposal. And I resented doing that at the time, but in hindsight, it was the most important part of a project, I would say. So the components of a research proposal are to have a background and an introduction. And this is where you do another literature search really focus on your topic of interest, what is known, what is not known, what are the remaining questions. And it's really useful to do it now because you eventually need to do all that research for um, when you write your paper for your introduction and for your discussion. So it starts with that. And then here you really do want, have to sit down and define your specific aims and hypothesis. You go away from just having, having a general idea of what you want to do to specific testable questions and hypotheses. So that's the second component of the proposal. The third component of the proposal, and probably one of the most important ones, is to really just outline your methodology and just be very, very um, strategic about it. How exactly are you going to obtain the data, analyze the data? Um, what statistical tests are you going to run? And that really, um, and we can talk a little bit more about this later, but that's really what keeps you honest in health services research. And finally, and also very importantly, Kemi encouraged me to uh, create shell tables and figures to so sort of map out what is my paper going to look like? What is my table one? What is my figure one? And just create these like shells without actual data. But then I knew that, that that's where the data would go. Yep. Um, and it's basically a roadmap to your project. I really like all of that. So I'm going to highlight a couple of things. Sure. I think the first one is, and I do the exact same thing when I work with folks on any kind of kind of research is doing that literature review and actually writing your background section as you do it. So you have that part of your paper, at least highly drafted. So I like that a lot as a piece of advice. And then I think the rigor of thinking through kind of really specifically, what is your hypothesis? What are the questions that you want to ask? How are you going to ask them? And then I, I, I want to highlight that pearl you said, and, and you should have an idea of what are the data that you're going to share in your figures or tables beforehand. I also want to highlight that you said maybe you resented it at the start. So <laughs> it feels like a lot of work before you get to the stuff that got you excited to get there. So why is it, why did you change your mind? Like, why did you decide this is actually a good thing to do? Because then I saw the data and I saw how large it is and how easily and quickly you can get lost in it. And, and I started to see, you know, the pitfalls there in health services research where you have all this like just this amazing amount of data in front of you. Um, and if you don't know what you're searching for, then you can just start performing random association analysis. And guess what? You're going to find some correlation, right? It's there's that, that exactly. 5% chance correlation. It's going to happen if you look for, you know, 20 different things. And so that's where you go back to your proposal and you stay true to your clinical question, to your scientifically th thought out question so that you can really rely on generating honest data. Yeah, I think that I, I really appreciate you making a point of that. And I, you alluded to it before that mm -hmm. you could go down a lot of different rabbit holes if you have all this data in front of you. And, and that's not the rigor that we want to bring to answering the questions that we start with. So exactly. I like that a lot. Okay, so let's say I do all that work mm -hmm. or someone, one of our listeners does all that work. <laughs> and now they're going to get to kind of actually look at the data. 
what, what are, what are the steps to doing that? Because I think that that is actually also a daunting task. Yeah, for sure. Um, and here I'd like to make the distinction between the raw or master data that um, is available through these databases and the honed down version of it that becomes your analytic data set. And in order to, to go from the just the massive amount of data in these databases to your actual analytic set that has the information that you need, yep. um, you need to create a data dictionary. And the way that you do that is you start out with, with looking at that master da- uh, data dictionary, picking out variables that you want to gather from that. So the low-hanging fruit is, of course, a lot of the demographic variables um, that you just take as is. And then you have to um, define other variables uh, that perhaps you have to get a little bit more creative with. So, so let me pause you there yeah. for a second. So I, I just want to start with the easy stuff. So you might say, I want to know age and sex, and maybe they identified, you know, self-identified race or something like that from your data set. And those are already there. And you can say this one, this one, this one. Mm-hmm. But then there's the more interesting stuff about what your clinical question is. How do you get those parts? Actually, as you said that, it reminded me that I, I forgot to mention a you know step zero part of the uh, of creating the analytic data set. But it's you have to define the cohort first, and that's something is you know I want females age this to that mm-hmm. uh, with this diagnosis who perceived this drug, for example. So that's right. that's your in- inclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. Then all the easy variables for that cohort. Yep. And then finally, the interesting clinical variables. So I think an example would be helpful. Yeah, here, Trish. I agree. Okay. So I, um, I needed to find patients with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer. But that is not a variable that is easily captured in the data set. They ha- you know, I have people who have a diagnosis, but how do I define what's newly diagnosed? Yeah. And so here I looked at just our usual treatment paradigms uh, for ovarian cancer to sort of create a branching logic of, okay, you have to have this diagnosis. Within six months of this diagnosis, you have to have received this treatment. Um, You know, and so, and I won't get bogged down into the details of that because I know not everyone here is an ovarian cancer researcher. um, Including me. (laughs) Including you. But the the idea is that you get creative on, on defining sort of search terms and logics in order to capture various variables that are not as easily identified. That seems like the part that would take some time to kind of think through the creative ways to kind of capture the things that you think are important that are there in the data, but aren't exactly the way that you might want them. So is that a part of the time that you spent a part of the process that you spent more time on trying to get that, that to work? Yeah. And for me, it was actually one of the more fun parts. And the way that I did that, some of it is just bouncing ideas off of your colleagues and your mentors. But another really useful strategy is, you know, going back to this concept of a literature search, you know, by you, everyone gets the idea of doing a lit search for the purpose of knowing more about their topic. But I also argue that it's equally important to do a uh, literature search specifically looking at your methodology. So branch away from, okay, let me learn everything I can about bevacizumab and ovarian cancer and think about, let me learn everything I can about other health services research that has been done using, say, the market scan database. Um, and so for me, I was able to get some really useful tips. So for example, from the colorectal literature, I looked at a lot of papers there that had used market scan to look at the same drug that I was looking at. And so really, you know, expanding the range of your search with a focus on methodology it will help you not have to reinvent the wheel. You know? I really like that. That's so <laughs> helpful. Like 
you're looking at a literature search with a very different lens and mm-hmm. you're broadening it beyond just the small group that does exactly the same type of research you do to see if you can get some of those strategies to, to cull out the right folks or the right you know, parts of data that you need to answer your question. Exactly. And a little pearl there, uh, many health services researchers, they publish their data dictionaries as part of the appendix or the supplement. And so that is, that's, that's great. I use um, extensively, I borrowed extensively from other people's data dictionaries. You know, we have really bright colleagues. So it's, you know, and of course you acknowledge them in your paper, but it's, it's great to use some of the clever ideas that they've had in defining variables. I love that. So use the other folks' data dictionary strategies because they publish them yeah. and then obviously reference that. Okay, so you do this work, which is, as you said, some of the fun stuff. I feel like it's a logic problem. And so people could get into that. And you have your data dictionary done. Now you Mm -hmm. can get your cohort and the data that you need. Is there anything else you do before you start to actually analyze the data, which is going to go beyond the the extent of our conversation today? (laughs) Well, you know, once the the process of generating the analytic data set is an iterative process. So you create your original idea of a... um, data dictionary, and then you usually pair with an analyst because most of these databases, you there's there's a middleman that you interface with to get the data that you need. So for me, it was, we had a um, data analyst at um, the, the center where I was doing my research. Um, and so basically we went back and forth several times kind of defining and polishing the data, my data dictionary until it sort of was ready to be used to generate that analytic data set. And then the analyst will do that for you. And then a couple of weeks later, you get your data. So I like it. This is a, you already talked about partnering with your mentor early on and kind of coming back and talking with your mentor along the way, but here you're also partnering with an analyst. And I know that not everyone has access to that, but there are lots of different ways to, to find some often affiliated with certain research groups or databases themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of maybe the as far as we're going to go today is that now you have the data because that the whole question about like, what do you do once you have your your cohorts data and how do you analyze it? And then how do you turn into the final product that you share with folks, I think is maybe another Thrivecast. But (laughs) um, before we close today, I I think you've given a ton of wisdom about kind of little pearls here and there um, for folks to make this easier, particularly for folks who are trying this out for the first time. Any last pearls for for listeners as they think about maybe translating that clinical question into a health services research question? Let's see. Well, in addition to what we talked about, um, I guess my my final pearl um, would be in the process of uh, doing your extensive literature search, make sure you organize (laughs) those sources and those papers. And so I strongly encourage using um, reference organizing software. I personally use Mendeley, but EndNote is another one of them. And it's just a great way, a great place to keep all your papers. They often have tags or filters so that you can subdivide it by by theme or topic. And it's just super useful to have it there. What I like about Mendeley is you can actually keep the paper stored uh, within the reference software. Hmm. And so it's really easy to search. And this actually, I use it for both my research and my clinical work. I like that a lot. And I think organization is a great thing, particularly when you don't do it, you realize how important it was. I've lived (laughs) that one. Um, I'm an EndNote new user, but maybe I have to consider an evolution in my management tool. So thank you so much for all of this. I think this is some of the stuff that I think people are curious about 
and they're, they kind of have a little bit of an idea, but you've made it much more tangible with lots of really helpful, here's the next thing you can try. Here's another strategy. And I really appreciate it. I also want to thank you for saying I did this with help. And so I know you did this in collaboration with your mentor, but I also want to acknowledge that you have a lot of wisdom that you shared your, of your own in this podcast as well. So thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Well, thank you so much, Trish. Uh, I really appreciate being here. And as always, if you want to listen to more episodes of Thrivecast, you can find them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also find them on the UW School of Medicine faculty website at faculty.udubmedicine.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>